Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. I, I was interested to, the, this became, instead of the science fiction book club podcast, it became the science fiction book club <laughs> podcast, which is, in terms of language games, um, you know, what are you playing at? <laughs> Well, to the two people who are still left listening, welcome. <laughs> um, so, Matt, what is it that we do here at Spectology? Well, we read books. The we have an expansive fiction. Book That's right. Club <laughs> pod. That's right. Uh, we read uh, science fiction books. We have an expansive idea of what a science fiction book is. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we uh, usually have two main episodes a pre read where we talk about the context around the book. Um, and a post-read where we talk about full spoilers, what happened in the book, everything we thought about it, and then some uh, bonus episodes um, in between where we do everything from interviewing authors to uh, talking about what we like, what we like in pop culture to, uh, you know, whatever we think of. Right. Today is one of our pre-read episodes uh, for a new book. Uh, this month, month's book is Wittgenstein's Mistress by David Markson. Uh, it's potentially a book that a lot of our listeners haven't heard of before. It is not necessarily a book that is, you know, one of the like common science fiction canon novels. Um, but it's a really cool one about apocalypse and identity and, you know, language games and whatnot. And so it should be a pretty fun book for us to discuss. Uh, this is, I think a bit of a, um, you know, I, th- I feel like once a year I get a self-indulgent pick and this is, this is my <laughs> self-indulgent pick this year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, regular listeners may recall this book, uh, if only because Adrian has mentioned it a few times. I believe yeah. this is a favorite of yours. It is. Whenever we talk about any kind of book that's vaguely apocalyptic, I bring it up essentially um, because <laughs> it's a book that... Let's see. I read it. I want to say not too long after I was living in Crown Heights, so like within the first year or two of moving to New York City. So it must have been like you know six or seven years ago now, maybe a little bit more. Um, and it is a book that. Uh, so I'll give the high level kind of like pitch on it, which is it's a book written by a woman who believes she is the last woman on Earth. She has been traveling the globe for the last. 10, 15, maybe longer, maybe less time years. Uh, And she has in this time, like not had anyone to talk to. And the book is sort of about her. um, It's 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 in the form of a journal that she begins writing all these many years later. That is her thinking about stuff out loud or on the page. Uh, And it takes this, yeah, it takes this kind of journal form. It's a very stream of consciousness novel. Uh, It's this kind of experimental narrative where like the narrator and the like, you know, supposed author of the novel are the same person, but then there's this other person who's actually writing the novel. Um, And it is about sort of like what it is like to be alone, Uh, as well as about sort of like the Western canon and all these different philosophical ideas and the way that like, you know, identity is socially constructed and what it does when you can't speak to people and what that does to your psyche and, you know, sort of like what civilization is and like all these kinds of questions, Um, the meaning of art. Uh, A lot of stuff gets brought up. Yeah. Dope. (laughs) Sounds dope. It's very cool. It's a very interesting novel. Um, I think it's fairly short, too. It's like under 250 pages. Uh, the one thing I will say, it's not available in ebook. It has only been published as a physical book. Uh, so if you do want to read it, you'll have to buy like a physical copy of it. You know, we'll have links to it as always. I would recommend going to an actual bookstore. A lot of them will have this or be able to order it for you. Dude, what is this? ancient egypt is it <laughs> right. only written on papyrus scroll right like, i believe on. there's no audiobook version of it either at least I, I i you know i don't listen to audiobooks all that much but i'm pretty sure there's no audiobook version so it's it is like a little bit less accessible than some of the books that we read um but i thought it was worth talking about it's also you know uh both matt and i are kind of in the shit shall we say this month and so we wanted to pick something that would be fairly easy to do off the dome and be easy and quick to read for us uh so you know that <laughs> that has there's like real world considerations have also come into it oh hello my cat has just decided to sit on my lap <laughs> yeah yeah you know so um this is gonna be pretty pretty fun i think 
I'm looking forward to reading this because I've heard about it from Adrian. Um, I also, I love ancient papyrus scrolls. Um, I like the opportunity to be forced to read a real book because honestly, <laughs> I mean, we actually had a whole episode. Did we have a, wait, did we have a whole episode about talking about eBooks versus physical books? Yeah, I don't we did. Remember yeah, yeah, yeah. We okay, did with Kevin. Like I way know back I've in talked the day. to you about that. <laughs> I just don't remember what's on air or not. Yeah. But, but you know, know Kevin, really nice. who was on my last self-indulgent pick, <laughs> novel, <laughs> Dark Eden. Um, but yeah. yeah, when he first guested with us, we talked about that. Yeah. It's really nice to, uh, um, to be forced to read a physical book. I really enjoy that. And I'm also really enjoying looking forward to this for the um, the philosophy stuff. I think uh, that's something we're going to talk about on this this episode in our sort of pre-read context uh, mode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that stuff's great. Yeah, I think this will probably end up being a relatively short pre-read as these things go for us. Um, again, relative, a keyword there. Uh, and we'll end up talking about a lot of this stuff in the post read too. And we can kind of talk about it in the context of the cool. novel, but yeah, I wanted to give a little bit of a sense of like, what can you expect going so into it? So if, if I, on the subject of, uh, philosophy of identity and language and Wittgenstein, you know, if I give you a sign called book facts, could you, could you give me a signifier? Like, <laughs> right. I can. So Wittgenstein's mistress was published in 1988, Although my understanding was it was written a fair amount before then. It was, um, you know, the, the, the number you hear thrown around online at various points is that it was rejected 52 times. Um, so Markson was a published novelist. He wrote a couple of novels in the 50s, which he referred to as his... Um, as his crime novels, as his as his crime entertainments, he he refused to call them novels later in his life. That is so um, pretentious, Jesus Christ! <laughs> it is, but it's also like I, I've read some interviews with him, and he's very unpretentious about himself. Uh, so is it kind of a, an ironic comment? It's a, yeah, okay. I get the sense it's a little bit ironic, but also they're very very different than what he became known for as a as a novelist and as a literary novelist. So I think there's also some nod, wink and nod to the fact that like they are plot driven novels and he like the novels he started writing beginning with victim science mistress essentially like stopped having any kind of sense of plot and cohesion in that way and so they're just very very different kinds of things uh you know i think some of it came from the fact too that he in interviews is like er, like every interviewer asks him the question of like oh you used to write this and now you write this why and i think there's some element of like i don't (laughs) fucking care (laughs) (laughs) the answer is because they made money for me (laughs) you know so um so Markson, crime books can be cool. Crime entertainments can definitely be cool. Oh yeah, we've talked a lot about that in the past. I mean, in our last episode, we did. Um, so this is a novel. Like I said, it was published in '88. I think it was written in the like '70s or early '80s. Um, although I'm not, I couldn't find like you know good information on that. Uh, it made a pretty big splash in the literary world when it was published. I mean, like the New York Times Review of Books you know, a bunch of other places reviewed it very positively. Um, and, you know, David Foster Wallace was like a really big fan of it. And in fact, like he, in the most recent edition, um, he has, he wrote the afterward for it, which is actually from a 1990 review that he wrote about it. It's kind of like a, uh, essentially a piece of like academic work reviewing the novel and talking about the philosophical ideas in it. So that'll be something we probably dig a little bit into, you know, given DFW his own kind of problematic history and everything, but you know, also wrote good book reviews. Um, yeah. And so let's see in terms of other book facts, <laughs> My cat on the lap is like not letting me. <laughs> not letting well, I can, me do I can sub easily. in here. We can talk about the author, David Markson, a little bit more. Also, right. some of his personal details. Um, like you oh, said. Oh, we should do content warnings just really quickly oh, before yes, that. Yes. Which, which, okay, so I haven't read this novel in like seven years. But you I, have read it. I have which read more it. more than me. <laughs> but I don't recall there being anything hugely content warning like necessary. There's definitely some discussion of like, violence but it's much more a book about ideas than about like things happening on screen uh there is some discussion of violence and sex i can't recall anything like hugely whatever but like also don't take that from me right now because i i don't feel like i'm a super um 
you know, accurate like uh, reporter. You don't remember <laughs> that it that well. Yeah. I don't remember it that gotcha. well. <laughs> also, um, you know, I will say the one other thing is that like Heidegger, I believe, does get brought up at times. And, you know, he like, f- you know, famous philosopher, also like famous Nazi. Uh, that's worth discussing. But also like Merkson was a Jewish man. We'll probably talk about that stuff more in any sort of post read if that comes up. But like that is like context for this book that people mm-hmm. might want to be aware of. Cool. I uh, I see here that you've made this this note of a quote from Markson. I, uh, what is yeah. the context? What is this? <laughs> right. So this is one of the Mark. You know, uh, this it comes from this um, interview that Markson gave to Book Slut. I think in the like early two thousands. Uh, so for a blog and um, it's it's a really funny interview you know it's him when he's like 77 giving this interview I will link to it in the show notes as always Um, but uh, he's talking about how everyone you know how he has noticed that he keeps getting brought up in these conversations about you know like novelists who like more people should know about Um, and specifically in the like context of like bloggers at the time talking about him in these kind of like tones of like oh I wish more people knew about him and like now that we have this kind of smaller platform let's like tell people about him kind of the same way you and I are doing with this podcast, or at least I'm doing with this podcast. (laughs) Um, And so the quote is, uh, you know, he's talking about this with the interviewer. And then what he says is one of my friends told me to be careful before I become well known for being unknown. Yeah. That's so good. (laughs) Which I love, which is, which is a sense, like it's a pretty witty book and you get a sense of reading his interviews that he was a pretty witty guy. Like he's kind of funny and sardonic and self-deprecating but not in a like smarmy way in a just sort of like you know i'm out here living my life kind of way and being pretty real about it um yeah. like very I, much I reminds like me of old school jews from albany who <laughs> who i have known <laughs> yeah which is exactly who he was he was a jewish man born in the 1920s in albany um he died in 2010 in new york city so i think he spent most of his life actually in new york city here um he you know i think famously donated his like very large collection like personal library collection of books to the strand bookstore here in new york city which was like not too far away from his house when he died um so it's very you know it's like you kind of get these hints of his biography and they're very much like you know new york city like kind of like not even literati so much as like, you know, kind of like underground novelist or whatever it is, but like a man who enjoyed his books and enjoyed his, you know, enjoyed writing. He, before that, before writing or while writing also, he was a journalist. He was a book editor. Um, He, you know, in some of these interviews talks really frankly about the fact that like he never really had a whole lot of money and was constantly you know, trying to find ways to make money while working. Um, you know, he talks about one of his books being the only good payday I ever got. <laughs> nah, this is, this guy sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah. I cool. thought, I thought you would like him. Uh, the, the interviews with him are really worth reading because he's kind of an interesting dude. Um, and, you know, like I think a lot of the no- novelists who we enjoy reading interviews of, or and we've talked about this before, Uh, Someone who doesn't have a whole lot of ego about what he writes, like he likes what he writes, but also isn't, you know, precious about it at the same time. That's so key. I mean, look, I enjoy reading, for example, like another literary Jewish, like, you know, titan of New York, Saul Bellow, but... Saul Bellow was anything but modest and unpretentious (laughs) and non-precious. Like... Dude was an asshole. <laughs> so it's uh, it's nice it's nice to 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 meet the sort of the the ones to to meet quote unquote you know through their books the ones who I would maybe actually love to have a coffee with were they still alive you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. So like I said, I'll I'll, I'll link to that. I, that was the one quote I really wanted to call out. Um, let's see. Yeah, I don't definitely know a link to whole some of these. lot more about his life that I think is like that relevant, except for, you know, I think it is true. He's one of these guys who like, you know, though I, I put it, Matt, I think to you, but maybe I think before we started recording, like, I think this book is incredibly influential in this kind of way of like, he's a novelist novelist. Like it's the kind of Mm, book that a lot of people who write stuff have read and are influenced by, but not necessarily a lot of readers necessarily have read. 
Um, mm-hmm. But it's a good mm-hmm. novel. It's very readable. You know, sometimes those are the novels that are just like actually kind of impossible to read, but have like a core good idea in them. This, I think, is a relatively readable novel. And um, one that, you know, like I would be shocked if David Mitchell or like Mark J. Daniel Winsky had never read this novel in particular. Or like a Nick Harkaway. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, maybe we should do a little bit of like, you know, fans of other books of the ones that we've read. You might also <laughs> like this, uh, do this earlier yeah. rather than later, I think might be helpful just because it's, it it's a, a kind book. of a comp conversation too, in a way. It yeah. is. It is. And I think, I think the ones that came to mind for me were, um, the new and improved Romy Futch, Nomon, the ghost network. Like if you've liked any of those three novels, you will probably enjoy reading this novel. Oh, also the other two were ice and, um, stars in my pocket, like grains of sand, like any of those five novels, if you've enjoyed either our discussion of it or actually reading those novels, I think this might be one for you. It's definitely on the literary end. It is not like hardcore science fiction in any way. It's, you know, kind of a stretch to call it science fiction at all, but it fits within this. What about a zone one genre? I would say even zone like zone one definitely depends on what you liked about zone one kind of if you liked the philosophical digressions about what it means to be alone in the end of the world then like a hundred percent if you liked the action zombie sequences maybe less so yeah yeah (laughs) so the same is um, true of Nomon. like if you liked the you know digressions about like meaning and life like a hundred percent if you liked the you know sort of like like I, I don't know, like the action sequences or the, you know, like mystery story, like maybe less so because it's very much just that it's a novel of mostly yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And it's and it's got the Pomo, you know, kind of vibe going on as well. So maybe if you like mm-hmm. Hinchin or or uh, or DFW or those guys, William right, Gattis, or Beckett like or that. Gaddis. Gaddis gets yeah. mentioned a lot in relationship to him. Um, the one that actually I always think of as the bit best comp of those guys is um, uh, Don DeLillo, White Noise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, or partially because yeah. he's such a good... Uh, Markson is a very good writer. It's a very stylized novel, but it's a very well-written novel. And it's one that's written in these kind of like aphoristic shorter sentences. That's part of, I think, why Wittgenstein gets like the call call out in the um title uh because Wittgenstein as a philosopher wrote these very short aphoristic sentences that kind of like built on themselves over time so they kind of start fairly easy to comprehend and like get more and more kind of arcane as you go on through his books but like you are supposed to understand them because they're all referencing stuff that he's already been talking about this novel reads a little bit like that um but it also kind of reminds me of Don DeLillo and the way that Don DeLillo is able to just like build these clever perfect sentences that like you know almost act as punchlines to a chapter and just give you this perfect idea of like oh this is what this chapter was about right like they're not taking pictures of the building they're taking pictures of taking pictures um i think there's a <laughs> lot of that same kind of like at a sentence level just like cleverness and like a lot of thought that goes into like perfect crafting these perfect sentences in this novel well you know the the logical picture of the facts is the thought adrian as, okay. as you know <laughs> i do know <laughs> actually no i don't know what that's from uh, that's a qu- uh, wittgenstein okay uh, yeah yeah so maybe we should talk a little bit about like philosophy i've read a little bit of wittgenstein um you know mostly in his uh you know the posthumous work that was um published uh which which one was that i have it on my shelf somewhere um not tractico logical whatever tractatus logico philosophicus right that's the one that i feel like most people kind of reference i i've read his not his not novel his book on like language games and language more specifically i found that very interesting and i think both kind of come to bear in this novel have you read Wittgenstein? yeah in college i did a um i did a bunch of uh philosophy uh Mm. philosophy stuff and and Wittgenstein was among among the folks um who i read and uh and we, you know, we would, we did a little, so he, he, he in his life is known for having kind of two periods, two major periods of his thought. And like, they're often like summed up by saying that the Tractatus Logical Philosophicus was the sort of capstone of the first period. And then his other, uh, most famous work, um, Philosophical Investigations, I think, um, is, uh, is the sort of capstone of the second period. 
and they're very different. And the reason his his work is divided up this way is because he like changed his mind about a lot of things, um, or at least like he claims to have whatever claim. Yeah, I mean it's all very like um, <laughs> when 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 you talk about a philosopher like this kind of everything you say is at issue like you could argue about every little detail so whatever but um but yeah that stuff is really interesting to me philosophy of language um i uh i you know i'm also interested in some of the other folks that are in, in part of that there's you know there's multiple traditions of western philosophy that deal with this and then there's of course totally other philosophical traditions that i'm also interested in like from china for example that also deal with these questions in a totally different way um this stuff is super cool. So I, I, um, I guess, you know, we can, we can start talking about some of these philosophical issues because I think that's something we wanted to do. But was there anything else that you wanted to mention briefly about kind of what made you pick this book, why you like it, why you think it's a good fit, why the, the sci-fi connection is maybe or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a particularly good fit for this podcast, but I'm picking it anyway. I think that's <laughs> why <some> not. Of... <laughs> I think it is. Um, Sounds like I, it's related you know, to a lot of other stuff we read. It is. I think. Well, that that so that's why because I think it's actually kind of like related to a lot of other stuff we we've read. I think it is. You know, likely more than a couple of authors that we've read have also read this. I, I, I would assume. Um, an author, definitely a number of authors that we like bring up a lot have read it. Uh, you know, I think it is again, sort of like one of these interesting, like, you know, foundational to a lot of authors, even if it's not to a lot of readers. And I am a big fan of talking about that kind of work. I, I think that's kind of like fun stuff to talk about in a podcast setting. Uh, I think also it's a good, like, I think it's one of these books that's like harder to do a pre-read for and easier to do a post-read for. It is going to be like a lot of shit to talk about in the post-read. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I also, I've just been wanting to reread it recently and I like don't get to read books outside of this podcast very much. So like, fuck it. Y'all are going to have to like read it with me if I'm going to. <laughs> well, I mean, for my part, I think it, it's, it seemed right off the bat, like a really good fit for me. And part of the reason is I think that there's like a, a lot of really interesting connections between sort of canonical Western philosophical questions and like Western philosophical writing of the sort that is like a big part of this book, or it seems to be, and mm -hmm. science fiction. I mean, in a lot yeah. of ways, the connection between a science fictional worldview and a philosophical worldview goes all the way back. And like yes. thinking about some of the questions that like really prompt um, science fiction stories is a thing that philosophers have also always done. And mm -hmm. so to kind of, as we so often do, literalize that thought and have a novel about the like specific, like uh, a specific set of questions uh, in philosophy being, you know, considered in a, in a setting that is not realistic, but that like maybe could be realistic. That's like exactly, mm. it's, it's a precisely science fictional kind of premise. You know, you've got this post-apocalyptic setting. You've got this person in a situation that isn't actually real, but like totally could be. And, and like, as a result, they're like, you know, interacting directly with some of these, you know, questions that have been fascinating to people for as long as people have questioned, you know, absolutely. that seems like that seems really awesome. Right. And I think, you know, I think from that, like in so much as we read books about ideas, like this is very much a book about ideas. It's a, you know, book that has this very clear speculative element of like, what if, you know, you woke up one day and you were the only person in the world? Yeah. You know, it's this thought that I've definitely had before of like, oh, what would that be like? And I think it also is one of, you know, we talked about in the zone one post read of how that book also worked in some ways as like this metaphor for depression. And I think there's, absolutely elements of this book that fit that as well i think it'll be interesting to talk about this book as like you know what does so the main character's name is kate like what does kate's aloneness mean what it, you know what does that represent mm -hmm. is it a form of depression is it a form of you know like i kind of hate to use this word but like insanity or madness in some way like what what is this like aloneness of hers and like what does it lead to but also what does it like represent in her own psyches yeah and I think in a really concrete way, this sort of questioning and philosophizing is just exactly what science fiction has always done. If you think about in, mm -hmm. in, um, in Plato, there's the very famously, there's a story of the Ring of Gyges. And that, I mean, from, I think, a certain point of view, just is a science fiction story. And like thought experiments and intuition pumps just are science fiction stories. 
and in the other in the other direction i mean so many classic science fiction stories whether it's frankenstein or the blazing world or you know whether it's like um, I mean, another stars in my we've pocket read, we've read here exhalation by by ted chang sure right? like yeah a lot of his stuff are just like straight up let's take this idea from philosophy let's turn it into a real object and let's play with that object and see what happens yeah yeah uh, um you know and and like there's a lot of different ways of approaching that but like similarly there's a lot of different philosophical approaches to these questions Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think I, in a lot of ways, this is the sort of thing where I can see why a lot of people would be like, oh, that's not really a science fiction book. But I think it kind of almost is more than you would, <laughs> you would, you would expect. It's more than you would expect. It's more than like maybe other things might, might be to, to other people. But I think right. it's actually like a perfect, a perfect pick. Yeah, no. And I'm really excited about reading it because I, I, you know, recall enjoying it a lot when I read it and being very like enthralled by it. And so I'm kind of also curious to like, I do enjoy revisiting books, especially books that at one point I really loved and like, it's been long enough. It's like, Oh, what is my experience of this as, you know, like I'm much older now I'm like 33 and sort of like 25, however old I was when I read it. Right. Like, what is that going to be like reading it? Um, so yeah, so I think, I think it'll be a good pick. I think that, you know, I hope folks read it because it is interesting. And if not, then I hope they like enjoy our discussion of it because I think it is a sort of like, you know, it's also, you know, it's a less accessible pick than like Empress of Forever or something like that. Right. It's a less accessible pick than like whatever, like new Hugo nominated book that like everyone's reading is, uh, you know, like I don't expect our like listener numbers to be up this episode. <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, yeah, cancel. Okay. Cancel. <laughs> Stop recording. <laughs> so yeah. I'm imagining so, like a guy. I'm imagining like we have like some sort of aide wearing one of those like green visors that like <laughs> 1940s like accountants used to wear and having like a typing calculator and he'd be like, oh, no, no, because like the numbers right. are bad, you know. Right. We're getting word our, from our, our producers. Office. We got to, yeah. you know, like add Danny DeVito in to get the get the <laughs> like, oh, viewership yeah. up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> make it even more about a major american city that's the, um, that's the ticket. <laughs> right so um i wanted to read the very beginning of this novel and then maybe talk about stuff if i can do that because do it like yeah. I, said, I really like the prose and i think the way this novel starts is just um just really great do it in the beginning sometimes i left messages in the street Somebody is living in the Louvre, certain messages would say, or in the National Gallery. Naturally, they could only say that when I was in Paris or in London. Somebody is living in the Metropolitan Museum, being what they would say when I was still in New York. Nobody came, of course. Eventually, I stopped leaving the messages. To tell the truth, perhaps I only left three or four messages altogether. So that's, that's how it begins. Those are the first like, you know, four paragraphs. Um, Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. And it's that it's like the whole novel is that like the novel doesn't really like change from being that. Um, but this is very appealing to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, it stays that good or, or it stays that kind of like impenetrable and it's definitely like written in a very stylistic way, uh, where it's all these sort of like definitive I statements. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I also, I, you know, I think maybe to start talking a little bit about the philosophy, one thing I did find kind of interesting. So there are sort of like, you know, quotes at the beginning of the novel, um, and the first one is actually by Kierkegaard. So the three quotes by three philosophers, Kierkegaard, Bertrand Russell, and Wittgenstein. Uh, Wittgenstein was actually a student of Bertrand Russell. Uh, Russell is someone that like folks might have heard of. He was kind of very instrumental in like early information theory, a lot of like logic, um, you know, set math. theory stuff. Yeah. So he did both. He was a philosopher who did a lot of like math slash philosophy kind of work. So whether philosophy of math or actually like using math to try to like, you know, define logic and define philosophy very much like kind of one of the forefathers of the analytic tradition. Um, Wittgenstein was a German who was a student of Bertrand Russell's in at, I think, Cambridge they were at, right? No, no, I can't I think remember so. if it was Cambridge or, or Oxford. I think it was Cambridge. Um, 
but they uh, they work together there. Uh, Wittgenstein spent a lot of time in the UK. Um, although it's, I recall he never really learned to speak English all that well. <laughs> and, like this, <laughs> this is like kind of like these famous anecdotes you hear about him is he like never really got rid of his like really thick kind of impersonable German accent. Yeah. So yeah, he so it, Wittgenstein is such his his biography is like so amazing. You know, I do think it's interesting that like Bertrand Russell and Wittgenstein, who are like always kind of like a pair in some sense right like you can't talk about Wittgenstein without also talking about Russell um whereas Kierkegaard in some ways who is this like you know Danish philosopher who is you know like a Christian philosopher working in this kind of like existential period very much a continental philosopher like not someone who you'd associate with the analytic tradition as much um but also like I think I find it interesting because like of the existentialists like Kierkegaard was like, I think maybe more particularly interested in some of the same types of questions of identity in particular that this novel is and language and how to use language, how we use language to create identity. Um, I'm a very big fan of Kierkegaard. I've like read uh, Fear and Trembling like four or five times. I have this like old war and like marked up copy of it that I go back to every couple of years. Um, so I, I, I really like that. And anyway, I think we could, we can maybe like talk a little bit more about but Russell and Wittgenstein as well. Now. Yeah, this seems like a good kind of context thing for, for, for this book. So, uh, I could give my gloss on like what, you know, the linguistic turn in analytic philosophy is, yeah, you know, and like, helpful. and like something you've like done that. More, like I've read this stuff as a, f- like, I've never taken a philosophy class, I've read a lot of philosophy and particularly a lot of like kind of more scientific minded philosophy of mind, analytic philosophy of identity and mind in particular um, Mm -hmm. and language, but like never in a like academic setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, I think it's it's really pretty interesting. Um, So you'll you'll have to forgive me, of course, because I'm not like a specialist. You know, I took classes in an undergrad, whatever. People, I think, understand at this point that, you know, I have many limitations. (laughs) You don't don't need to be so modest. Yeah. But so um, so I think my my gloss on this is that, like, in the 19th century um, in uh, in England and in Germany, there developed well, okay. Uh, just to back up a, a little bit further, I think um, I think a lot of it comes from math, actually, uh, mm-hmm. or at least one of the, the sort of proximate causes of all this stuff is like certain developments in math in the 19th century, which mm-hmm. didn't just happen in those places. They happened all over the Western world from France to Russia, um, but also in England and Germany and many other places too. So basically in, in the 19th century in math, for the first time you had the development of a kind of uh, rigor that had not previously existed. Um, people suddenly became much more interested, or at least they became interested in a new way in questions of like, how exactly do we know this? We think we know a lot of things. How exactly do we know these things? Like how exactly? And like, Mm -hmm. how can we be sure that that's like a good way to know these things we think we know? about math and so or like when can we truly say that we know something yes right like what's the difference between the things that we are pretty sure we know that are just fundamentally like knowable or not the way we have to assume things and the things that we're trying to find out yeah and i think the the, one of the reasons this is is sort of useful to think of this coming from math is that when you think of it coming from well first of all i think it it did but second of all i think like it it helps to understand like what why people like it gives you a motivation for why people would care about these questions that's a little bit different from the motivation you might remember from when you were younger and you were like pondering some of these existential questions yourself so in like mm-hmm. calculus for example calculus is is pretty old like it dates to the um to the 1600s and uh you know it's you know the tool a lot of the tools of of calculus are things that people figured out um all the way back then or even earlier um and uh and so as soon as they figured those things out like um one of the things that typically happens in the development of of math is that like people figured out how to do some stuff but they didn't necessarily figure out like what the limits of the stuff they were doing were they didn't necessarily figure out like okay what exactly are the things calculus can do and what exactly can it not do they figured out like okay you can like you can think about a thing called a derivative you can think about a thing called an integral mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to get 
too detailed, but like you can think about certain things in calculus, right? And you can do certain things in calculus. And like, that's super helpful. If you want to like, you know, calculate uh, certain physical things, certain like, if you want to solve certain like engineering problems, that's like really helpful. But then what eventually happened long, like, not even eventually what would happen pretty quickly and then like continued to happen after the development of these new tools was people started to find uh paradoxes that the, the, that the tools created they started to find sort of things where it seemed like the new tools of calculus should work but they like stopped working um like without getting more technical like it basically like they were not aware of why calculus worked and as a result they would like when they tried to use it in certain ways that you actually kind of can't they would stumble into problems and produce results that make no sense and so this prompted people to want to develop a more firm understanding of why calculus works because that would actually have a direct impact on understanding what sorts of engineering problems you could solve with this what sorts of you know mm -hmm other mathematical problems you can actually solve with this and what sorts of problems you can't. Right. And right. Then, and it's worth yeah. pointing out that there is an actual, like this isn't just like heads in the cloud stuff. There's actually like practical engineering reasons for people wanting to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like calculus is an engineering tool. Right? A lot of this math is like tools for engineering, especially at this point and knowing when you can apply those tools, it, just like knowing that you can't hammer a screw, right? Like mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to know that if you're going to build effectively. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, to understand how calculus worked um, took a while. People weren't able to really do that until the 19th century, and and in a lot of a lot of a lot of times, people will say in the history of math that the big project or one of the big projects of the whole 19th century was developing developing this understanding of how and why calculus works, and in the course of doing that, people became interested in these big questions. Um, and they be, and they developed tools to attack these big questions in math. They developed like a language about how to talk about rigor mm. and proof that they didn't really have before. And then, of course, what happened was math mathematically minded people that also cared about philosophy were aware of this. And they started to think, what if we can use these approaches on other philosophical questions? And this was people like Frege, like Russell, like White, mm. Alfred Whitehead, you know, in the end of the 19th century. And so... Bertrand Russell uh, and his collaborator Alfred Whitehead um, began this massive project where they were going to try to use math to develop a firm and unimpeachable and like um, provably correct understanding of how uh, language works. And then if you could do that, you could then apply that to like all other philosophical problems. Mm -hmm. And this, this, and they weren't the only ones interested in this sort of thing. They, their, 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 um, their work was among the, the most like famous or whatever, but like there were people, you know, around the, around the Western world that were engaged in this sort of project. And, um, this is sometimes called the linguistic turn, uh, in analytic philosophy and the history of analytic philosophy. And so it is, you know, Wittgenstein was, was, uh, you know, a generation younger than, than Russell. And so he kind of became aware of this when he was coming up and went to England um, to try to get more involved. And, um, you know, he became incredibly famous when, after he became involved and, and partly inspired directly by, by Russell and Whitehead's book, he produced the Tractatus Philosophicologicus, which was his sort of initial phase of his career's magnum opus on how language works and how thought works. Mm. Um, so and that's interesting, yeah. you know, he, especially later in life, but but even even the Tracticus, like in some ways, also act as a rebuttal to this idea that like you can mathematically define how language works, right? And, yeah. and that oh, way he, he becomes yeah. very very influential because he he ends up being right about that. Um, and you have other folks like Girdle kind of like also proving this, um, that you can't simply use set theory to define the way that language works that like, you know, you will always come up no matter what you do with, you know, any perfect mathematical 
language like will by definition have like things that it can't talk about or you can have like fuzzier languages that you know you can always talk about everything but you can't perfectly define them like it's one or the other um and Wittgenstein you know sort of is one of the important people in the sort of like philosophical just like acceptance of that idea yeah it's really interesting to think about um because of course before Wittgenstein you know and especially before Gödel so Wittgenstein's Tractatus comes out in like I don't know, um, yeah, the teens, the 19 teens like or something like yeah. that. And, uh, and Gödel's, uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorems come out in like 1932 ish, something like that. And so that, you know, there's a, there's a gap there, but like, especially before Gödel and before Wittgenstein also, people really didn't think this was impossible. People thought this was totally possible. People mm. thought that like, okay, if we get the math right, we'll be able to prove how language works. And then we can just like calculate all these answers to these like deep <laughs> philosophical questions right you know they weren't like joking when they thought this and like it wasn't just philosophers either it was mathematicians as well you know um mm -hmm. david hilbert a mathematician very famously in 1900 produced this list of like the the big questions that he thought would be the the kind of questions that would motivate all of math going forward in the coming century and uh and this was more or less you know behind um, several of them, and one in particular, the idea that we are going to be able to develop a precise and like rigorous foundation for all thought and then use that right. to like do even more crazy stuff. Right. And the, the hope I think at some point was like, you know, we will define a perfect logic. We will define a perfect mathematical language where we can encode any meaning we want in this language and then we will just do the math and we will get answers right like the, this language will yeah. like eventually like lead to answers to these questions which is you know in some ways like funny sounding now it sounds like like i think there's a lot of work that's been done such that like you or i hear that now and it's like well obviously that's not how language works and that's not how math works and like you know no yeah but this is the very beginning of the like field of information technology as well i think is kind of worth pointing mm -hmm. out like this is also like alan turing is doing work around the same time and in the same place and is influenced influenced by Russell, right? Like, like these people who are kind of like designing computers and code breaking systems and like, you know, more, um, mechanical mathematics, uh, you know, Boolean logic, whatever, like there it's all happening kind of in the same context. And there's this flow of idea, like back and forth between these folks. And, you know, they didn't have at this point the idea of like Turing completeness or of a computer, right? Like they didn't have these ideas to be able to like apply to it. So they're working in this very like, you know, math as a kind of like abstract concept realm, not one that I think we work in today, which is like, you know, math is like ones and zeros that computers. Can yeah. Work with. I mean, it's really fascinating to think about the intersections between math philosophy and the development of computation theories. Like, mm -hmm. because so, you know, Hil so, you know, Hilbert and, and his, his program for the, for, for the future of math were, um, were before Russell and Whitehead published, um, published their sort of, uh, their, their work, the name of which I'm forgetting. Um, and it's also before Wittgenstein and it's also before Gödel and it's before Turing. And by the, t and, and one of the things that they didn't realize, um, when, when they were, when people were working on these issues in the 1890s and the 19 aughts, um, they didn't realize the kind of implications of the idea that you could encode thought completely. If you could encode thought completely and precisely, um, and, you know, and, and what does that mean? Well, that's like a, that's a really profound idea because that's kind of the, the core of what computation is. Um, and so that's like much more familiar to us today, but was not familiar to them then. But if you, if you could encode compu like thought precisely, you know, well, one of the things you can do if you can encode things is you can compute on them. And if you can compute on things, even without an electronic computer, computation exists. And so if you can encode something precisely, you can compute on it, no matter what this physical substrate that you're computing with is. Um, even if it's mm -hmm. pencil and paper or an abacus, you can still compute on things that are encoded precisely. And so what that would mean is you could like whatever you could do with computation, you could do on the thing you encoded. And so they didn't really realize that then. That was an implication that it took until the 30s, until Gödel and, and Church and Turing and, and those guys um, to really begin to, to grasp what that would mean. Um, and like, in particular, what it means is like, you can, if you can encode a proof of anything, then you can like compute proofs. 
And this is a fascinating topic because this is like, this is still a live topic in comp- oh, yeah, in complexity theory live. and in, in, in the theory of computation. Um, and if you want some like buzzwords that are related to this, if you, a lot of people are interested in these sorts of things as they relate to new kinds of software concepts. Um, uh, I hate to use the word blockchain, but <laughs> just so that you understand how like prevalent these kinds of ideas are, like it is actually true that um, even today there are serious researchers looking into the idea of um, like um proof-based computation on on the blockchain <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a real thing you know mm-hmm. and and like i don't you know I mean, in some ways that's the idea like one of the ideas behind ethereum right exactly right and of course uh ethereum to uh to its detriment has sort of forgotten some of the key like lessons of complexity <laughs> theory and that caused them to lose hundreds of millions of dollars and this is why if you're going to do something like that you really should study like the classics but in any case <laughs> <laughs> well and i think that you know that comes up over and over again particularly in like the history of computer science of like these ideas getting kind of like reinvented and reapplied over and over again in yeah. different like pieces of like of computer science and of people being like, oh, well, we can do this relatively easy if we just have this thing. And then realizing that that, like, you know, relatively easy part is not actually true. And in fact, it's like fundamentally impossible. Oh, yeah. So much so, <laughs> so much so, so much so. So, so this is all really interesting. But I think um, one thing that we've totally gotten away from is, is, uh, is the is the sort of context of all these ideas? So this this whole tradition, mm-hmm. the analytic philosophical tradition, and the anal- and the sort of rigorous proof based mathematical tradition of the nineteenth century, and then the kind of you know tradition of the theory of computation and analytic philosophy and philosophy of language in the twentieth century. That is all you know. Those those things are all happening at the same time that totally other things are happening in other parts of the world. Um, is in particular like a lot of this kind of philosophy and theory of computation is happening in England and in the English language traditions. Um, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, in continental Europe, in um, in French and in German and in other parts of continental Europe, uh, in the 19th century and in the 20th century, sure, there's people working in analytic stuff, but there's also other traditions of dealing with language and thought and what those things mean. And Kierkegaard is certainly, you know, related to some of those other traditions like existentialism right. uh, much more strongly than he's, or at least like, you know, more closely, more directly, maybe not more strongly than, than he is related to, um, to the analytic stuff. Well, I think, so the, the quote at the beginning attributed to Kierkegaard is, um, what an extraordinary change takes place when for the first time, the fact that everything depends upon how a thing, how a thing is thought first enters the consciousness when in consequence thought in its absoluteness replaces an apparent reality. Right. And I think this is where Kierkegaard, in my, you know, limited reading, it's like one of the very first philosophers who really starts asking questions about like, you know, what is thought and what is reality and how is a thought a representation of reality and like splitting these things kind of apart a little bit. Um, you know, I guess I guess you can make arguments of like Descartes also doing some of this, but I, I think that, you know, the way Kierkegaard does it in particular is he is sort of asking these questions about like, is He's asking questions of ontology, like what is knowing something? Like what does that actually mean to know something? And he's, you know, very much interested in this question in terms of faith, right? Like the way he's interested in this question is in terms of like, you know, what does it mean to have faith in God in particular? Like what does it mean to, you know, sort of like believe things? Um, but he is taking this approach of it that is, you know, I think very scientifically minded at the time, right? Like he's also like a product of this sort of like scientific revolution in Europe and he is engaging with that as much as with his like religious tradition um it's really and cool so to I don't cons- know I've yeah, always sorry, I've, uh, I've always really you know like I say I like fear and trembling a lot I read it a lot <laughs> um and I think it's really cool kind of the way that he specifically I think is beginning to ask questions that are at the heart of philosophy of mind and philosophy of identity and philosophy of language in terms of like, what does it mean to know things? What does it mean to say things? In what way is our like the way that we think about things both determine the way that we see those things and also like the way that we are. Yeah. 
It is cool. I, one way that I understand the difference between continental and analytic traditions of investigating like language and thought is that the continental traditions of which, you know, Kierkegaard would be more associated with which mm. he'd be more associated, um, kind of tend to be more interested in like the context of how these things work. So if, if an analytic tradition is interested in like the machinery and the tool like aspect of, um, of language and thought, um, right. Like, the continental tradition would be interested in like, okay, sure that, but also like, it's a part of you and like, how does mm -hmm. it relate to these other things that are a part of you, you know, your mm -hmm. emotional landscape, your connection to history, um, your connection to God and to faith, the nature of your being as including this, but also as including other things. Right, right. Right, and you know, also maybe the political philosophy of that too would would fall under the continental yeah, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, of like, how does this relate to power and the way that people relate to each other? Um, you yeah, know, what does it mean for there to be a sovereign? What does it mean for like people to have power over each other? What are the ethical implications of that? Who is allowed to wield power? Obviously, there's a lot of like really bad philosophy that's been done. You know, again, to kind of bring up Heidegger of like folks using this sort of philosophical tradition to justify really terrible behavior. Um, but yeah, it, he's he's an interesting case. I mean, Heidegger absolutely was a Nazi. He was just a Nazi. Um, there's right. no getting around that. It's not an ambiguous thing at all. Um, but his philosophy, I mean, a lot of it was written before the Nazis came to power and before he was a Nazi. And that stuff is certainly people, a lot of people, you know, don't like him and don't want to engage with him. But there are others who I think feel that engaging with him is okay. Um, you know, if you do it critically as you should, you know, always engage, right? I mean, like right, it's, it's, right. it's not probably not a good idea to not engage critically with any of these people. Um, you know, but, but even beyond like Heidegger and his Nazism specifically, like there's a lot of enlightenment philosophy that went into justifying colonialism yes, and yes, settler colonialism exactly. and slavery and like all of this sort of stuff. Right. I mean, like there's this sort of like, you know, kind of. I mean, I saw it in like a tweet form recently, but I, you know, I've seen it in many forms where it's like, you know, oh, like I'd like to learn more about ethics. Like, oh, you should read like this ethical philosopher. It's like, oh, I read him, but like he's really racist and like justifying slavery. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you just need to like divorce that part of it. And it's like, wait, really? Like that's how we think about ethics. And it's true that like a lot of these early you know, philosophers were just finding some really horrendous, heinous shit with their philosophy. And I think that it's worth, you know, kind of calling that out. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that, you know, it's, it's also still worth engaging with them if just to understand like why people can, you know, even people yeah. who you might agree with philosophically endorse right. some really heinous shit. Like, I think that's good to know that people can do that and how they do it. They absolutely can. And I, I think it is also true that like, Heidegger's ontology doesn't really have anything to do with Nazism. I mean, mm -hmm. even aside from the fact that it was it was he he made it up before he was a Nazi and before the Nazis like existed as a force in German politics. Even aside from that, um, it's it's also true that it's just not about the same things, um, right? And it's it's kind of you know, I think to some extent it is possible. Like, I think being critical of problematic people. Um, can involve taking from them you know like i yeah, think totally it is possible to compartmentalize to some extent um so long as you know we kind of do it humbly and with the idea that we can make mistakes as we do it you know what i mean like i think right, i think it's right. important you know to to kind of recognize that it's possible to sort of fail to do it badly um but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean one can't um also do it successfully Right. It's also sort of an interesting question for me of like, are there way, you know, it's like I am more likely to listen to Heidegger talk about ontology than about ethics. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, like there's just also this element of like, you know, are there certain philosophical things that like I am more easily able to like divorce mm -hmm. folks kind of like personal bad opinions in other places from? And I think the answer is probably yes, although I haven't thought super deeply about that, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's it's definitely it's a really good I mean, like one of the really good points that people make um, about like the problems with reading people who have problematic ideas like is that, um, look, if they have this blind spot that we care deeply about, like, 
what does that say about their philosophy? That's like a like an extremely you know direct question about the efficacy of their ethical system. If we're talking about ethics, you know, right, um, right. And then it's also true that you can find people who, like John Stuart Mill, I think is a person who was very aware of, for example, issues of race and gender in a time where the vast majority of people were not. The vast majority mm-hmm. of philosophers were not. Um, that said, like, did he did he handle it like in a way that we we would like today. I mean, you know, it's I think a lot of people would say his 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 handling of it was very problematic. But but it's you know, his I think the the, the point I'm trying to make is just that his case is maybe different from um from a a Marx, for instance, who in his personal life perhaps in his right like you, they're they're very subtle gradations here. You know, this mm-hmm. is a this is a very like we could have a whole podcast about like the sort of differences between the way these guys wrote about um the rights of women and the way that they lived about the rights of women and oh, right. well, what implications that other, right? you know carries for how well their systems of thought work and you could just go really deep uh, into all of this but i mean i think you're bringing it right. and like, i'm sure really other people like have done a much better job yeah. than you and i could yeah. do especially exactly. together given exactly. like my you know relative lack of like actual formal education on any of this stuff um but these you know, are like the then, important questions, I think. Right, right. And it's too, it's, you know, worth kind of pointing out that like as we're thinking, like my, you know, philosophical reading is, well, it's not true. In the last couple of years, it's definitely broadened out a lot further into like Eastern philosophy, at least, and in, in a very sort of like very narrow subset of Eastern philosophy that is sort of like, you know, kind of like like 1600s and later like Japanese and Chinese Buddhist thought. Um with like some Tibetan stuff thrown in there for good measure. Uh, but you know, like when we talk about philosophy here, we are also, and, and I think this book in particular is mostly interested with that in the terms of like, you know, the Western canon and the Western ideals of what philosophy are, which are, you know, specific and not the way that philosophy works everywhere. Um, you know, yeah, that's very true. And I also, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think it's really good, you know, to talk about both the analytic and continental traditions, because even within Western philosophy, there are these totally different traditions that people today often complain, do not interact with each other enough. And that's just within Western Europe, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like it's (laughs) to say nothing of, of, of like other parts of the world. I mean, you know, this book, I don't know that it, it really deals with, um, non-western uh philosophical traditions okay Um, but but it's worth pointing out that non-western philosophical traditions are absolutely interested in these same questions Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. in in sort of substantially different ways um the questions of like what is it to think and what is a what is language and what can language do are things Mm -hmm. that you know just as they have been in of interest to western philosophers going back to you know the pre- pre-Socratics are, are, are of interest to Eastern philosophers going back to the warring states period in China. I mean, yeah. like the, yeah. you know, Duong- well, the question yeah. of like, what is a person, right? Yeah, I think that's right. one question that's very much at the heart of this book is like, is a, you know, and this is maybe something that ties back to other discussions we've had about apocalyptic novels in particular, where, you know, we, we've pointed out a number of times that, you know, a lot of American apocalyptic fiction kind of like takes at its central like atomic unit, the individual, right? Like so much American apocalypse is about like, you know, one or two people, like maybe Mm -hmm. a family unit, but kind of like surviving the apocalypse on their Mm -hmm. own. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of like non-American traditions, it's much more about like how does society change during an apocalypse, recognizing there's still society during an apocalypse. And this sort of recognition that like individuals don't stand alone. Right. Yeah. Like we 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 are not just individuals. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think this book is kind of interested in those questions. Right. Like on the one hand, it's a book that is about like just like there's only one person left alive. Like it is just her. And then the other hand, it's like almost asking like, well, what is it to be alive in that circumstance? Like, how does that change? How, how does that change what aliveness is and what a person is when you're alone? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. questions the- that. Wittgenstein and Kierkegaard and these other people are also really interested in is like to what degree do you need other people to like you know define yourself yeah it's very interesting typically I think a lot of people in the analytic tradition are are very interested in the machinery of thought 
specifically and not in the machinery of how like thinking beings interact whereas in the right. continental inter- tradition people are more interested in that but in in other in, in the chinese tradition that i'm more familiar with like you know uh, people are thought of in terms of relationships going all the way back i mean the idea right. that a person is defined by a certain specific set of like delineable relationships that have different characters um is present in you know in mencius in confucius um you know like 2400 years ago um Mm -hmm. and and discussed like concretely and then that recurs you know ever since in in like various different ways right for example i mean very famously um there are uh there are like five different types of relationship in ancient uh in the ancient confucian tradition um there's one's relationship um, with one's liege lord, there's one's relationship uh, with one's uh, parents, there's one's relationship with one's partner, there's one's relationships with one's um, uh, friend, and then there's one's relationship with one's child. Um, yep. And that's like, and we think, and it kind of, you know, thinking about a person in those terms is so different from thinking about a person as an atomic unit characterized by atomic units of thought like interacting with each other in in your mind, which is an analytic idea. Um. (laughs) Right. Right. And it's, you know, I mean, it's like, it's not to say that like that one or the other idea is incorrect per se either, but that, you know, I think oftentimes, you know, I've read a lot of like modern philosophy of mind, um, you know, sort of the, especially the stuff that is really kind of influenced by like modern neuroscience and modern like understandings of like how the brain works. And a lot of this philosophy of mind is really, really interested in like the really getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, like, oh, well, like how do neurons create consciousness? Mm-hmm. And like, there's this element sometimes I'm reading of like, well, are you guys asking the right question here? Yeah. Like, do you know, like there's also the question like, do neurons create consciousness or is, you know, is there some form of like, you know, communication that creates consciousness? You know, it's like, is it actually that you have to talk more abstractly and think beyond the brain to be able to understand consciousness? And, you know, I think a lot of modern philosophy of mind would say no. And then you get some of the, better philosophers who you know might say i'm not interested in that but yes or just like yes and like i am interested <laughs> <in that. laughs> yeah you know. yeah i mean i think the more you investigate this stuff the more different approaches there are and it's mm-hmm. it's it's legitimately difficult to sort of unify them um some people of course try to do that too um right you know i mean because i was just thinking when you were saying that you know like uh, when it comes to the big questions it's almost like every field has their own answer i mean i was thinking i was reading recently about some about like prehistoric uh the development of prehistoric humans and like often like um prehistoric specialists um they divide they divide humans into like when we're thinking about um uh hominids um yeah yeah you can divide the development of hominids into that you can there's a there's a, a period of time before the development of um what's the phrase physically modern humans or no, sorry, it's it's um, yeah. There's there's a there's a physically modern human moment, and then there's a developmentally modern human moment, and those right. are considered to be different moments. And the implication right. is, the implication is, and the idea behind that distinction, um, is that uh, it's not enough for us to have a physical body. It's not enough for a person to be human. It's not enough for them to have a physical body that that like isn't always human. They also must be a part of a human society. That is recognizably a human society, even if right. it is very different from ours. Right. And, and that's, very that's like an argument. Yeah. On that, that I, that I've seen that, you know, and like did research on in college, because this is like what I was interested in, why I took linguistics in college was this question of like, you know, when does language develop and why and how, right. And there's all these sorts of arguments that are often made about, you know, especially right. Like <clears throat> um, Chomsky famously kind of makes this argument that like, you know, humans became humans when like some development happened within the brain that like allowed recursion to happen. And once that happens, then you can have language and language sort of like naturally develops at that point, huge oversimplification of the entire argument, but that's like generally it. Um, but there's also like another argument that gets made, which is that like language developed in like kind of little fits and starts. Uh, and that, you know, essentially that like we did stuff like we formed bits of language and then it became, you know, uh, like evolutionary 
evolutionarily fit for us to be able to like learn that language more quickly. And so it's actually like language and our behavior had an evolutionary driving force on the development of the brain and not the other way around per se. It isn't like we didn't wait for our brains to get big enough then spontaneously develop language, but rather like over time as we developed more and more of the different parts of language, like those things, you know, we found ways to like evolve brains that like were better at using that language. Um, you know, until we hit the point of, you know, both physically and developmentally modern humans. Um, and that, that question of like, you know, is there a difference there between developmentally and physically modern humans? Like, where is that difference and where does it lie? I think is you know, one that is both really interesting and also gets really problematic really quickly. I think a lot of people, <laughs> when they talk about it, um, so, well, that's kind of all I have at the moment. Yeah, I'm excited to read this book. Yeah, I think it'll be a good a good discussion to have when we have a whole book here to talk about. I hope you like it. I hope everyone else likes it. I hope I like it. I mean, like I said, it's been long enough that, you know, I hope I still enjoy it. I think I'm going to. I read the first, like, couple of pages again. I had to, like, I, I don't know what happened to my physical copy of it. I probably gave it away at some point because I love giving away books that I love. Um, so I had to go and, like, buy it. Funny enough, at the Strand <laughs> today. That um, is correct. The, the bookstore where he donated you all of his books thing. to when he died. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to reading it with everyone. All right. Well, Word, anything too. else? I'm also looking forward to it. Cool. Well, we will see everyone back here in a few weeks when we talk about it. We'll probably also have some bonus content in between. Uh, yeah, and we hope you all read it, you know, buy it from your local independent bookstore or like bookshop.org or Amazon or wherever you need to. Uh, but, you know, it's fun. It's good. It's a, it's a cool book to have in your bookshelf. Sweet. Sweet. All right. Peace. Oh, yeah. Thanks to WJ Thank and, um, you know, Noah Bradley for artwork. We're at spectologypod at gmail.com or at spectologypod on Twitter. Blah, blah, blah. Talk, talk, talk. Uh, we actually had someone <laughs> send us a really cool email recently, which I will probably end up referencing if she's okay with it in the post read because it was really fascinating talk about kind of like European versus um, uh, American post-apocalypse. Oh, yeah. And speaking of apocalypse, like don't sleep on covid19 the coronavirus like prepare more than you're being told to for real like buy buy dry food and have it handy i don't know do we need to do that <laughs> i'm gonna do it <laughs> matt doesn't think so but i do <laughs> okay <laughs> all right stay safe <laughs> peace out Bye. <laughs>